Hey, Colin. How are you doing? Not too bad. How about you? Oh, I can't complain. How do I sound? You sound like you have a cold. I do have a cold. Yeah. I'm just sort of... Yeah. Got some water there. That's good. You gotta stay hydrated. It's coffee. That hydrates too, right? It does. I'm pretty sure. I think that's how it works. I've been watching the Olympics. Mm, they drink a lot of coffee? Yeah, they seem to. Out of like thermoses or something? What are they? Squirt bottles of coffee? I'd go to the Olympics if I could compete on coffee drinking. Hmm. I'm you know, there's something called like the Commonwealth Games, the World Games. Something like that where they do all the other sports that don't count as sports. How come rock climbing is not in the Olympics? Because it's not a sport. It's like a sport. You get hurt and stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It has its own lingo. Not very interesting, though. Um, depends who you are, I guess. I mean, to watch. Oh. Well, most Olympic sports aren't that interesting to watch. I suppose. Maybe it'll be... The problem is now they're all on TV. It used to be that they could just run them in obscurity in the corner. Well, I think there's still a lot of them that are. They just stream them online. Aren't there like 150 events or something? Yeah, but like 42 of those are running. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, they're like running 10 feet different distances. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, rock climbing would add like another 32. Yeah, we have... 10-meter climb, the 10-meter woman's climb, the 15-meter climb. Well, we could also do sport, trad, top, bouldering. Yeah, I don't know. I think if we're going to start looking for inspiration for new sports, we should really be focused on American gladiators. <laughs> we may have missed the window on that one. That was such a great show. Do you remember that show? I do. Had that bike, hand bike thing. That looked hard. Whatever. It had the, uh, it had the tennis ball cannon. <laughs> any, basically, I think any Olympic sport could be improved by firing tennis balls at the people. It certainly adds a different incentive. It's true. None of the none of the sports right now have the incentive of not getting beamed with a tennis ball, well, except tennis. But that's not an Olympic sport, is it? Um, that's too sporty. Yeah, no, just badminton. I don't think they do tennis. Just badminton. Huh. And table tennis. Well, that's like tennis. Hey, so uh, what's new in the week? We have some articles and things we we're going to talk about. I don't know. Yeah. You wrote a blog post this week. I did, and we'll uh, we'll get into that kind of around the edge. Do you want to do that now, or do you want to go through some news first? Uh, sure, we can go through some news. I mean, the only other thing that's new is SIGGRAPH. I'm going to SIGGRAPH. Yeah. If you're going to SIGGRAPH, you should talk to Mike. Yeah. You guys can I, meet up. I booked a flight last night, kind of last minute, but... SIGGRAPH's in San Diego? L.A. L.A. Downtown L.A. Cool. So, yes, I will be there. I get in late Sunday night. I didn't really account for traffic. Well, I did account for traffic, but I didn't account for car time. So my flight lands at midnight in L.A. I don't know when that's going to mean I get to check in. Probably late. Very late. Yeah. That's okay. And then I leave Wednesday evening. So I miss Thursday, and I miss the parties and stuff on Sunday, but... Uh, I get three solid days of conference. Cool. Well, we have one SIGGRAPH piece at least in our show notes, but uh, I'm sure we'll have more next week. Yeah, definitely. We can do uh, we can do one on either Wednesday evening or Thursday. We'll kind of go over things. Uh, probably going to be Friday, Thursday. I'm I'm at the racetrack. Oh. So if anyone's going to be at a uh, at, at Autobahn Country Club on Thursday. Racing Fiats, you should come say hi to me. You're gonna race your little clown car? Well, um, it came with buying the car a track day, but you don't actually race your car. You race one of their versions of the same car. 
so that they don't have to worry about um, liability because they're the ones sponsoring. Yeah. I think they were worried about the idea of if we give you a track day and tell you you can only bring your car and something bad happens to your car, you might hold us responsible. Right. So So now it's only a problem if you hurt yourself. Right. And really, like, how could you hurt yourself in a 40-pound car? On a racetrack? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it will stop anything. So, yeah. That's how momentum works, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. You uh, probably go over anything you hit. You know? Yeah. It's not like you're going to stop quickly. And that's probably good for internal organs. You'll just keep bouncing. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Um. So, yeah. So, what happened this week? Um... Uh, you know, nothing really. The Olympics. Uh, we have one article out there on the show notes. Uh, we mentioned last week that we would start to see more articles about the video production stuff going on at the Olympics. The Times had one talking to NBC's chief engineer that also talks about some of the gear involved and what happens to the gear at the end of the event. So that's an interesting read. Um, there have been a few more I didn't bother calling out because they weren't particularly interesting. Um, yeah, I haven't seen any of the technical ones yet. Um I don't know. Is that... I feel like I don't see a lot of those technical articles anymore. Is that just because the, like, broadcast technology and stuff have gotten so bad at a web presence? I think that's part of it. I mean, some of those... Because they've moved, like, completely to their little Java junk. Right. I mean, some of those resources have just gone away over the last, you know, few years. But uh, I think it's just in part that, you know, they don't show up on our radar and I don't know. I probably don't keep track of some of those sites as much as I should. I sort of look at PVC well, the, and Studio Daily and Creative Cow. And yeah, I mean, I used to follow broadcast technology and all those pretty religiously. And the problem is they've just gotten so bad. Have they gotten they've bad? All, or they've just never been good. Well, I think for a while they were in plain text, but most of those like trade magazines have gotten roped into this whole that like java plugin viewer thing where you can like turn the pages and everything right and you still have to read everything with their three column formatting and the jump to page 32 and all that bs yeah that should die so anyways new york times article uh interesting if fairly non-technical read um, the other sort of just newsy bit, uh, was an article that Creative Cal had on the Canon C300 being used on the set of Departure Date. Um, only interesting insofar as it's one of the, uh, first productions that seems to be using the C300 that I've seen a, a sort of coverage of how that's working on set. That's, um, a, you know, a serious production. So it's just interesting because the C300 is a pretty cool camera and I imagine there's going to be a lot more of this going around. So this is a movie? Uh, yeah, right? It's a movie, not a TV show. Yeah, I'm looking at it like this. Yeah. Cool. I'm surprised it wasn't Soderbergh. Well, isn't he all red? Is he now? Because he used to be... He's the guy who shot on movie on the XL2, right? Yeah. Sex, Lies, and Videotape, right? Or no, that was... No, it was like a real... It was like a real movie that was supposed to look like a movie. Oh. I don't remember which one. It was one of his side projects, not his blockbuster projects. Okay. It was not Ocean's Eleven. Um, so, yeah, the other interesting stuff, I guess, um, the Resolve 9 beta made it out just under the wire for a July release date. Um so if you're a Resolve user, you've probably already got this, but if you're sort of on the periphery of color correction, uh, Resolve 9 is a, you know, it's still in beta, but a very polished sort of product at this point, um, and is certainly starting to reflect even more so than the previous releases, I think is starting to reflect the, the new investment that Blackmagic has put into the product. Yeah, well, and the new direction they want to take yeah. it. I mean, it's definitely a lot easier to use. So I downloaded the beta and started playing just with the um, 
we just keep a copy of light around um, to play with and it's uh it's like the startup procedure is so much simpler you know everything used to be based off of i think a pro progress ql database yeah had to be running that host all the files and ugh, it was there's still i mean but you know basically they've rolled all that internal so that now there's a database file but you don't have to worry about my server in the background and connecting to it and all that other junk and the creating new users is streamlined it was much it's a much simpler app right to get you know in and running quickly so it'll be interesting i mean i might you know i've always loved nodal tool chains yeah for these sort of things and so it seems like now that the initial startup is you know startup costs are so much less just time-wise you know next time i have to do something simple i might actually pop into resolve instead of final cut seven and try to muck it all with a bunch of layers yeah definitely i i think there are more and more people going that route i mean resolve has been hugely successful since black magic uh brought the product back to life and so it's you know good to see continued progress on that front yeah i mean the only thing the only thing they're really missing now is a plugin architecture right they still don't have that um i don't know about that i don't think they have an effects i mean everything has to be done internally now with with a nodal compositor there's not much you can't do mm-hmm. but you i mean as they drive down market i would expect they'd want to be able to offer pre-made stuff i mean they there might be some business model to be had in you know they've gotten much better at um handling grades now mm-hmm. which is basically you package up an effect and store it so you can recall it later and they've you know they've done a lot of work in this release with grades and sort of streamlining that ui um so it's conceivable that you could sell or toss around grades or offer grades on your blog as sort of an enticement to right. get people interested in you as a colorist well, that's sort of so what we saw we sort of saw that with final cut x especially when final cut x first shipped because they have uh, you know they had that new way of wiring motion projects up as reusable effects within final cut x um did you see a lot of those yeah, I mean, especially in the first few months before the plugin manufacturers got up to speed, uh, there were a lot of people on like the Creative Cal forums posting simple one-offs to, you know, do a, you know, just do basic filtering or to add masks, like creative masks and things like that. Sure. You know, there, there was a, and I, you know, it may be still going on and just has moved to other places, but. Uh, yeah, I mean that was. That was huge. I mean, that's one of the things I love most about Final Cut in the beginning with FX Script. Right. Just the ability to quick crank out a script that would do something. Yeah. I th- it's sad that that has gone away. I mean, I get that we need to be able to run these things quickly now. But, I mean, you look at all this, the interesting stuff being done in After Effects with expressions. And why... I mean, it's not like we're living in the 80s anymore. We have embeddable compilers and stuff. Like, if, you're, if speed is your worry, there's, there's no reason why you can't let the user write a script, cross-compile it to OpenCL, and run it on the damn GPU. Mm-hmm. Um, and even inline optimize it into your existing filter pipeline. Yeah, I would just question whether there's enough demand there to warrant it, you know, and what what is the set of users who are interested in that who aren't going to just go to a tool like After Effects? Well, but After Effects lets you script a different set of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one no one gives you the ability to quickly write a plugin now that like like a shader essentially that changes pixel values. I suppose. Um, I don't know. That would be a good thing for the FX uh, factory car. What are they, what are they called? Yeah, the ones who wrap factory. up. Yeah, the guys who wrap up Quartz Composer. Yeah. It would be interesting if they exposed that a little bit. I mean, you could do it in Quartz Composer since right. you can write your own shaders there. But 
that's right. that's not going to be fun to troubleshoot. Yeah. It would be nice if they could clean that up. I don't know. Uh, Maybe we're past that. Maybe this is like car engines now. Yeah, pretty much, I think. I, you know, again, it's it's interesting that as the industry shifted and in, in some regards, I sort of see the industry in this more specialized place than it was a few years ago um, in terms of software products and in terms of job specialties and things like that, because we've moved away from this idea that you can have a jack of all trades. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, it depends on the, which end of the market we're talking about, but yeah, it's definitely as the tools have gotten cheaper, it's been easy to adopt them on more projects. It's been harder exactly. to get to get the, you know, one computer can have every tool you need now. It's harder to find one person that can drive that all those tools on that computer. Yeah, and I mean, I I think that's just a, that's not that's a, sort of an intractable problem. Right. Well, and it's also I think in you know in part there are just so many more possibilities. You know, there are things that ten years ago on it sort of lower budget not not necessarily indie but even on a lower budget production you just wouldn't try whereas nowadays a you know low cost production can still have pretty serious you know motion graphics and visual effects and all kinds of other things and that requires art and and you know technology talent and other things but very specific skill sets each of those yeah but it's feasible um so yeah it'll be i don't know um, so other stories, um, on the software development side of things, since it's Yeah, you linked to this QuickBooks do. article here. Yeah, this one I thought was interesting. Again, as a, as a developer, um, it's an article by one of the guys who manages the QuickBooks software team at Intuit and just talks through what their process is like in terms of managing source, how they deploy across multiple platforms, how they do testing, how they do QA, um, and it was interesting to read just because it's such a different world from what we do as a small company, even if some of the, the language is the same. Um, and they obviously, when you're dealing with financials for thousands and millions of small businesses, have sort of high consequences of failure and, and other things. But um, it was well, an interesting I mean, article. They've got an interesting set of problems because they've got to both ship to everyone and they're still doing all box product, right? I guess they've no, got QuickBooks no, online. And they have downloadable. Right. But they're they're gonna be less likely to push out incremental fixes. They right. do they do big release cycles. Right. And so not only do they ship in on multiple platforms in multiple languages, they also ship in multiple countries and every country has currencies separate, yeah, and separate financial issues and so they've got it's interesting. They've got static code analysis, automated testing, human-powered testing. They do outsourced testing. Um, and then, you know, they have the reality that their code base takes a really long time to build, even on a distributed build system. And that changes the way you develop software as well. Um, and so it's just an interesting read. I always like these sorts of articles where people are willing to get a little bit uh, honest about the issues they face and the fact that they've got legacy code and legacy users and um you know they have to deal with all of that yeah interesting so and it's it's, i'm i don't know i'm curious about some of the tools i talked about in here because they uh it just seems like there's a lot of code analysis possibilities on windows that we don't really see on mac just because you know as mac developers we're sort of hamstrung to apple's tool chain right yeah and i just you know part of me wonders like is this is this static analysis better than what we get for free from apple or not yeah i don't know uh john carmack's been talking a lot lately on twitter about static analysis as well i guess they've been rolling some of that into their tool chain at id software and have been finding interesting issues well they've been rolling it into their um other thing too right they're Oh, into the space rocket. Yeah, into his Armadillo Aerospace project. Um, so, yeah. It's cool stuff. I mean, it's it's 
you know, when we play with uh, the Klang Static Analyzer, it's always pretty amazing what it finds and how deep it's able to go. You, you know, it'll discover things where you think it couldn't possibly be figuring that out without actually using the software. At least I always have that reaction. Yeah, it's, you know, it's neat. I, I think I tend to get less surprised by what it finds just because I've got more of a working knowledge with LLVM and sort of I know what everything gets compiled into with sure. the intermediate representation and what sort of what's possible with that. Um, but still, yeah, I mean, it's pretty neat what you can do with automated tools now. It'll be, I don't know, I wonder, do you think we'll ever get to, do you think we'll ever, anyone will ever release bug-free software? Well, I mean, the, you know, the thing was always that the space shuttle operating system was like the only piece of bug-free software on the face of the earth. And it came at a cost of something like $80,000 per line of code or something. Right. Well, and I think we may have talked at one point about the software development process on the F-22 Raptor um, fighter plane where it's got multiple redundant systems developed by completely discrete teams in working in isolation. So the, the backup system, you know, was, was developed completely. Has a different set of baked in assumptions. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wonder if you could do, I don't know. None of that gets you bug free software though. Well, and bug free is it gives such you a... error for error more error-proof software. But, I mean, there there is a way to... I mean, it's not inconceivable to have software that is so... One is so strictly defined that yeah. you can guarantee that everything works. Right. And, you know, and you pre... You know, you build in the assumption that it bails when it's not in a known state. Right. Well, I think that's pretty achievable if you've defined sort of user expectations as well and i don't know well that's different you can never you can never set in stone user expectations well but that comes back to part of the problem is this interpretation of what what is what is bug-free software then right but but i mean i don't think there's even a static analysis tool that would do that yet where you could say I mean, this is one of the things that they're working on with LLVM right now is coming up with um, range analysis mm-hmm. where you can basically preset. You can actually analyze your software and start with it starts every variable with sort of, you know, it's either the variable is either set to a constant. So, you know, that it is that number or it's set to whatever the bounds of its type is. And then as you it interrogates every single operation that touches that variable and adjusts the range accordingly. Sure. And then at the end, you can start looking at things like, okay, so I've got a signed int 8, and at the end of this function, my range is, you know, 0 to 3,200,000. And then you're like, oh, well, that's not an int 8. Yeah. Yeah, so you can find some amazing bugs that way. You know, mo- well, I would say the majority of the remaining intractable sea bugs, because um, a lot of those now are, you know, pointer overruns or index overruns in arrays. You know, basically there you you do math such that you end up outside the bounds of what the compiler can hold in whatever thing you're doing. Right. I mean, you know, the issue then is just you're going to run into compiler bugs or OS bugs or hardware bugs or, you know, chaos theory. I mean, you know, I think it is possible to write bug-free code, but I don't know that it's possible to have a bug-free experience. No, I mean, that'll never happen. But, I mean, it's always it's always 50 shades of gray. Where do you want the bugs, Colin? <laughs> How many of do you want, and where do you want them put? Um, component manager? Oh, that's not very sexy. Speaking of uh, testing, uh, last software development, software development-y, 
story I have. Mm-hmm. Um, Chaos Monkey, which is a product, which is part of the Simeon Army, which is a set of open source tools out of Netflix, um, has been released open source. They announced that they were going to be open sourcing this and published some papers about it, but it's actually out there now up on GitHub. And what Chaos Monkey does, um, as you might expect from the name, Chaos Monkey is designed to create chaos. And the idea is if you've got a heavily cloud-based infrastructure like Netflix does, Chaos Monkey goes around and just sort of randomly kills servers or causes other issues, Um, the idea being that it forces you to have a really robust, redundant infrastructure, and rather than waiting until a data center actually goes down, like we had a couple weeks ago because of storms out on the East Coast, um, you're sort of constantly having to respond to these failure events. Or yeah. your infrastructure is having to respond. Hopefully, is responding all automatically. And the idea with Chaos Monkey is that it forces you to be dealing with that. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, it seems like so they only run it during. I'm looking at this, and it's set up to only run basically during business hours. But it sounds like they don't really. It seems like they don't differentiate much between real problems and chaos monkey problems. Like, right? It's just it's the technician's job to basically fight this thing all day. Yeah, exactly. It's it's <laughs> you know d- the idea is that a chaos monkey problem is just another problem, and if you didn't respond to it automatically, then you need to fix it. Right, but I mean, it seems. Okay, so their idea is basically they want their entire system to be self-repairing. Yeah. Okay, and so if Chaos Monkey takes something down and it doesn't come back up, then it's a bug. Right. Okay. Well, and and, and more so just if, if Chaos Monkey, you know, if Chaos Monkey were to knock Netflix offline, um, that tells them a lot about their infrastructure, right. but it means right. that they've done that in a controlled way in which they've sort of logged everything that went into creating that failure. And so they can respond better than they could when a storm knocks out a data center or something. I mean, you know. Sure. No, that makes sense. But it seems, I don't know, like it seems like you could spend a lot of time chasing, you know, saying like, why did this server go down? And it's like, oh, because we pulled the plug on it on purpose. Right. Well, but again, you know, that. I mean, I guess finding out the cause like that is probably less of an issue than finding out why you're even having to ask that question or I I guess the point is with a cloud infrastructure like this, you don't care about failures per se. You, because you You assume about resiliency, right? You you assume you're always going to be having a, a, some number of failures. And the point is with a cloud infrastructure, you can automate the recovery by just deploying a, that VM to another host or, you know, your storage shards are moved over or whatever. Sure. Um, but because sort of all, you know, EC2 and all these sort of cloud infrastructure providers, everything is sort of manageable in an automated fashion, you know, it, it should never, it should, it shouldn't ever, and, you know, a server going down shouldn't ever trigger a person to have to do anything in a cloud-based system. Right. Interesting. So, but it was, it's a cool idea. And obviously it takes um, a lot of guts to implement something like this. But I think that, and, you know, Netflix certainly hasn't had a perfect uptime record, um, and they yeah. have suffered failures, but they're also, you know, managing a set of problems that's fairly unique in the world. There aren't too many people who are having to deal with as much data across the world and who need to sort of maintain bandwidth levels and other things the way they do. Right. Um, you know, even in a case of something like Apple, because they're not guaranteeing streaming delivery, they're able to do things like fall back to delivering from servers in their own data centers when they have issues with cloud infrastructure. Uh, whereas Netflix just doesn't really have that option because of the type of throughput they need to maintain. Right. So, and they don't have their own data centers per se. So they don't, they have to, I don't think so. I think they're, they use commercial cloud tools. They use like EC2 and stuff. So they like, they actually, they just, every time they, Rip, they rip a movie and get it ready. They just well, I'm sure they're on EC2 and they're done. They don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they have like servers for managing their you know Word documents and things, but they don't have like a central you know the Apple they model don't have a local truth copy. Right, right. The Apple model <laughs> is a central data server with you know 
edge caches and things right. like that. This is much more distributed and relies on third-party commercial providers of cloud so tools. Huh. Interesting. I did not know that. Um, let's see. Thunderbolt FireWire adapter is notionally available now, ostensibly yeah. available. I still have not been able to find it on the Apple Store. Uh, some people claim that they have gotten shipment notifications that theirs are shipping. I assume that means that the product actually exists, but Apple's uh, online store has been a little weird the last couple of days. So, Yeah, I haven't seen them. I can't find a link to them. How are people getting them shipped to their houses? Because yesterday, for at least some period of time, it was in the store. Oh. Huh. And no, now. I found it. I just got a link to it. Okay. Let me see. Maybe I can get it, Add too. Add the cart. I just clicked the link in that article. Okay. I'm going to try it, too. Let's Check out now. Do it quick. Live buy-in. Oh, hey, mine works, too. Look at that. Yay. We just had to talk about it. They must be listening. Yeah. So why do we care? I mean, now that I have one, why am I happy? Um, well, because you've got a MacBook Air, and now your MacBook Air can have FireWire on it. True. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So for us, we do some work with IIDC cameras, which are FireWire cameras. And so we need this ability. I've also got some FireWire 800 drives attached to this Retina MacBook Pro to get around the sort of internal storage limitations. So even though I've got FireWire... Um, via the cinema display that it's attached to, the Thunderbolt cinema display, that only has one FireWire port, and so it would be nice to have a second one available for connecting cameras and things like that. So, Sure. Cool. How many are you ordering? ordering? What's that? How many are you ordering? I don't know, five or so. <laughs> no, I'm just going to get one. I just need to test it to make sure it works. Yeah. I wonder, so, hmm... I'll grab one from Amazon when they become available. You're not going to buy this one? No, I'll get one on Amazon Prime. Save on shipping and... Uh... Man. Why do you hate your state so much? I didn't... I. Uh, what do you mean? I'm going to submit my use tax. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um. So, yeah, so that that's like the news, right? You want to go and uh, do a little bit of a deep dive on our flesh line and a little bit of the issues we brought up yeah for sure so so yeah so this week monday i posted a blog post which was a couple dozen weeks ago i uh on this podcast i was talking about the humane project humane um the Brazilian photographer, um, I don't remember her first name, last name is Das, um, who took photos of people at two different events under some rigorous set of lighting, which we haven't been able to determine, um, and then sampled the center of their face, found a median color with like the eyedropper in Photoshop, chose a Pantone chip to match, and then um, comped them on top of that color and uh, labeled it with the Pantone number. Um, we can link to the original art project or just link to our blog post, which has that art project. But um, it's sort of made its rounds uh, in the industry recently, colorists have sort of said, this is an interesting project. Um, you know, that's a somewhat large atlas of possible skin tones. And uh, it was interesting to us because, one, a bunch of people saw it, including a bunch of colorists. Um, and two, no one said anything about, these don't look like real faces. They look plastic or they look like they have the wrong skin tones and so um you start to imagine that they are probably a good um set of data to sort of examine as what you know 
there's been lots of talk over the years about what skin tone should look like um, and what they look like in various tools like the vector scope. And so I decided to um, slurp all those images into some test data and uh, run them through Scopebox and see what we got. And so the blog post basically did just that. We, I uh, loaded up all, there's 150 images in that Tumblr. And so I grabbed all of them, um, processed them in Photoshop to give us uh, color chips and uh, built a contact sheet of all 150 chips in one HD 1080 frame. Um, and then brought that into Scopebox to look at. And uh, it was interesting. Um, everything skewed a lot redder than, than common knowledge would have ex uh, predicted. And so that sparked a lot of conversation on the Internet about Fleshline and iBar. Uh, and it's not exactly... I don't think people, it, it, the, uh, the terms have been muddled enough now that it's worth going back and uh, looking at things historically before we start trying to make any judgments. So, you match everything to the flesh line, and then you know your skin tone to look good. Which is not untrue. Um, I mean, that certainly works. Um, and there's another camp which says, ah, the flesh line's horrible. There's no reason to put anything there. It's an arbitrary line. And they're correct as well. Um, so let's, let's go back and uh, sort of define the flesh line historically. Um, because there's no such thing as a flesh line right. uh, before Scopebox shipped and Final Cut Pro. Uh, so originally, in the NTSC days, there were two lines on a vector scope, I and Q, which ran from one side of the scope to the other and formed a cross. Um, and those are the two axes of the two encoding quadratures of NTSC multiplexing, I and Q. So when you, when you have an NTSC image, um, people tend to think it's YCRCB. But in reality, in the old, old days, it was YIQ. And I and Q, in most conversations, get just sort of lumped in and confused with CR and CB. They're color difference channels in the same way, but they are not the same color difference channels, and they're not weighted the same. And and just um, if you think back to your old school composite video, like uh, the stuff you'd feed down a BNC cable, a single BNC cable, if you've ever wondered how you get Y, U, and V, or Y, I, and Q, or whatever on, on the one cable. This is how that happens through quadrature modulation. Um, and if you think about old-school NTSC bars, the three chips in the lower left corner are there for adjusting your phase, your quadrature modulation. And so part of what you would do is line up the traces from those blocks with the I and Q on your vector scope. Right. So if you... Yeah, if you've ever... I guess that's really the best way to explain what I and Q look like is if you remember the was that was that the pluge or was that something No, pluge is the lower pluge right. is on the other side. So it I don't remember if it had a name. But the uh the yeah, the lower left side, those purple bars down Pur there. Yeah, purple, white and like bluey turquoise. Yeah. yeah, so that's where things get confusing because the purple and the blue don't look very far apart, but they're actually 90 degrees separate in I and Q encoding. And so, yeah, so they're not, they don't really map well. In the same way that, you know, any color difference channel doesn't really map well to color 
you know, the traditional, you know, perceived perceived colors. Right. Um, you know, it's not part of a rainbow. I mean, it's yeah. So you can think of it as if you've got the if you've got a vector scope up and you think of that as a color wheel, CR and CB are two axes that run directly through the color through the center of the vector scope at 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock and 3 to 9. They're, you know, they're at 90 degrees and they're oriented, you know, with a, with a horizon line being one channel and the other one being, you know, straight up and down. Um, I and Q were different. They were rotated in phase, and they're not even at a 90-degree angle to each other. They're off. They don't... They the encoding actually overlaps slightly. Um, and so these lines, because this is so hard to, to visualize, if you're an engineer and you have to worry about this, were just drawn on the vector scope so you could find them. Um, and they were used for setting up the phase back when the analog stuff actually needed to be phase set in order to have the right colors. So, um, and if you've ever wondered why digital bars often don't have those, it's because... It would be pointless, right? And so, so yeah. So there, we all switch from NTSC to digital signals. Digital signals don't have I and Q ever, never, ever, never, never. They have Y, C, R, C, B color differences, and or Y, P, R, B, B. But either way, they have more traditional mathematical color differencing, not these analog quadrature mumbo jumbo and so when we switched you probably saw a lot of tools went to something that at the time was called digital targets digital scope it's 601 color space and all of your targets in the vector scope move they used to be sort of this oblong elliptical shape sort of taller than wide and when we went when we went to CCIR six hundred one, they all formed a nice perfect circle at seventy five percent inside the thing. They were just round. Everything was at an equidistant angle from the center. It made a lot of sense. And what happened somewhere in here? And this is I'm I'm starting on a blog post for this, and I need to find some historical references. So if you have any, please get in touch. But somewhere along the line, people figured out that flesh tones tend to fall on this eye axis in the vector scope. Now, so if you if you tell people, you know, put your flesh on this line, it's going to be fleshy looking. And that kind of stuck. And somewhere along the line, especially, you know, at the low end in teaching universities and, and, you know, places where you're just trying to get people up to speed and people like hard and fast rules, um, this became a good hard and fast rule. You put your flesh tones on the, on the eye bar or the flesh line, as people started to call it. Um, but that wasn't what the line was invented for, and that wasn't... And that line wasn't, it, it did so many other things. I mean, it was a whole, it wasn't a line that you put your flesh on. It was one part of a line that you put your flesh on, and the rest of it went in the wrong direction. And then there was another line that you had to remember not to put your flesh on because that was almost 90 degrees out of phase. Um, and so when we went to digital scopes, most people dropped these lines entirely because they were there for setting phase, and phase no longer was an issue. Some people left them in for this secondary use, which was Fleshline. And so we did that. Um, Final Cut Pro did that. I'm still looking for other people who did that. Um, and this is when, you know, the utility of it, some became a little bit more codified and where things start to shift around a lot because now 
used to be that the bar had a very specific mathematical use, which was that's where the i-axis is in quadrature encoding, and that never changed because that was a spec. Um, but as soon as we all decided it was a flesh line and got rid of the other half of the i and the entire q-axis, now you have to start making decisions about what you do. Um, and the biggest decision is if you're calling it a flesh line, then it's like a target. It's something that you do. It's the same as the RGB CMY targets in a vector scope. You put stuff on the line. And so if you've ever cracked open scope box and switched the color spaces, or if you've ever dealt, you know, if you dealt with the transition from 601 to 709 color space, you see that the targets move. And that's because those targets, you know, everything that we care about in video is RGB because that's what gets presented and that's what gets seen. And so the intermediate, the transmission color space, YUV, YCRCB, um, you know, 601 color space or 709 or P3, those all get translated back into RGB values at some point. And so when you're mixing color spaces or when you're trying to target something in a color space, what matters most is what the colors come out the other end after they've been transformed back into RGB. And so you'll notice when you... Yeah, so in the same way that the the color targets and color bars move around between color spaces, we made a conscious decision that now that the flesh line is a flesh line and not an eye bar, that it should move as well because it doesn't really make sense. If you're saying this is where you should put your flesh, it doesn't make sense that it changes colors between color spaces. So what we did was we kept color constancy between... That's probably a bad term because it has so many other meanings in color correction. We, you know, we wanted the same exact RGB values to fall on that line in any color space. And so that seemed like the right choice because of what we were calling it and what we were telling people to do with it. Um, and we just sort of went from there. And it didn't come up until this blog post wherein um and incidentally final cut 7 did the exact you know all the old final cut 7s did the exact same thing um they would move the flesh line based on your color space and uh yeah so when we put up this blog post there was a lot of um hubbub about the fact that our that these color chips don't fall on the flesh line. And, uh, you know, personally, I think that shows sort of how great human vision is, that you can basically put flesh tones anywhere, and with the right context, they look natural. Right. Um, and, you know, to me, it's somewhat of an indictment of the flesh line, not because it's wrong to put flesh on the flesh line, but just because there's so many other options. Right. Well, um, I, I, I and was... I don't, I don't actually see a problem with there being a hard and fast rule for people who need hard and fast rules and the rest of us know we can ignore it. Right. I mean, you know, and, and the data shows that you can hit the flesh line and not be ridiculously off. I think it's also worth just noting here that we're not making any sort of set in stone assertions about the testing methodology because we didn't control the acquisition of the original data and we can't speak to the fact that it wasn't that, that there wasn't some issue during that acquisition process or the process of getting those images into web friendly formats or anything else well yeah i mean this yeah this this was never a scientific study we're not if we wanted to do, if we wanted to find out what color human flesh really is, we would shoot people under controlled lighting, naked, with a camera set in manual, with uh, like a DSC chart in front of them, and color correct to that. Right. But 
that's, you know, that's not really the issue. The issue is what looks right to people. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I liked about this, this test data was that it's been bandied about a lot in the last couple of weeks by people who, you know, like serious color correctionists. And no one was like, oh, you know, the problem with this is all of this looks really red. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone looked at this and said, well, these look like a lot. You know, it's interesting to see all these colors that people can be. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there is no science. There's, there's no science in this anywhere. Um, not in our testing methodology and not in the flesh line. Right. Like, right. It's, it wasn't. It, I mean, it's not a flesh line. Why, right. The reason why we're going through the history right now is because it was never meant to be used for this. Um, and it's not, it's not bad that it has this second life, but the thing that I found in the, you know, the thing that's really interesting historically is so, you know, the only people I know who sort of jumped on this and said, you know, this is going to be a flesh line now are us and Final Cut Pro. Um, everyone else sort of kept it as a legacy eye bar with all the cruft or just dropped it entirely when you left, um, NTSC color space. So, you know, I'm still looking through trying to find data from the various manufacturers, but it looks like Harris drops it entirely when you're not in, like when you're in HD. Um, you know, Premiere, God, Premiere doesn't even, I can't find 709 targets in Premiere. Uh, <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone knows of a way to, to monitor HD in Premiere's built-in scopes, please tell me, because I spent a, a couple hours yesterday looking and I can't find it. Um, but they, they do have the eye bar and it is internally consistent because they're still scoping 601. Um, yeah, but what was really interesting is in, in this conversation when we were starting going back and forth with Alexis Herkman, who has, he's done similar tests with his own set of data. Um, both he's done the shooting people on, you know, in controlled lighting with chips, um, with, you know, gray chips and he's done he's pulled he did a similar thing to us where he went and just pulled a bunch of images from the internet of you know things that had been color corrected to look human in uh you know print journal or print advertising and took all of those and built an image and scoped them and his does fall on the flesh line Pretty consistently, but what one of the things that he found when we were going back and forth is he said, "Why does your trace not hit the flesh line in the same place as it is in Final Cut X?" Which seemed like you know a pretty big thing, um, you know, because whatever else you know, you know, wherever these things fall, they should fall the same place in every single set of tools. And what we found was either by error of omission or bug or conscious decision, Final Cut Pro X has gone back to treating their flesh line as an eye bar. So it no longer is a target in the same way that ours is. It is now a constant bar regardless of color space. And so if you color corrected to the flesh line in 601 and then toggled that project to 709 in Final Cut X, none of your tar- none of your flesh would hit that line anymore. Well, that's see, that's the thing. So this is this is muddied a lot by Final Cut X because Final Cut X has is doing a lot of color space conversion internally. Um so I'm not sure. That may actually re color correct all your footage differently but I can say this if you make a project soup to nuts in 601 and color correct everything to that flesh line and then make another project soup to nuts 709 and color correct to that flesh line and then take them to like a tape to tape editor and try to intercut them your flesh tones will be two different colors yeah um not, I mean, we're not talking huge shifts here, but, you know. A few degrees. I think 12 degrees. So not, not insignificant. 
but I would have to look that I'm for the blog post I'll actually check our code to find out exactly what the difference is between the two color spaces but I believe it's 120 and 132 degrees so it's 12 degrees of hue which is you know it's a lot when you're dealing with things that people see a lot day to day yeah you know I mean we're wired to to tell if the people around us are going to kill us with their diseases based on their flesh tones. Uh, so it's something where, you know, we've got a lot of biological wiring to determine if people look right or not. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I thought that was interesting. I don't see a compelling argument for it at all. Yeah. Other than... And I see one <laughs> argument, which is from our testing, it looks like the it looks like the um with both sets of data, um it looks like the flesh line is better now. <laughs> right. Is slightly more accurate. It it look yeah, it looks like it's a little bit better match for flesh now than it used to be when we decided it was a good match. Right. So I don't I mean, yeah. I think I think ultimately the solution is to get rid of the flesh line like everyone else has. And I mean and figure out a better solution. I don't know what that's going to be, but um we're gonna put up a blog post. Please comment. If you have better ideas, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. It's you know there's a lot of variability in the world, and so this idea of having a rough ballpark makes sense. But if you take it as law, you know, you run into all these issues as we're seeing here. So, well, I mean, and you, the thing is, all these will look fine ultimately. I mean, I mean, if you're, if you're, yeah, if you're internally consistent on your production, um, that's that's what it comes down to most is people notice differences, right. and so. The idea, I mean, the best thing this line has going for it is that it's always the same. It's always there. Like, right. you don't have to remember where to put your flesh tones. And so if we move the line 12 degrees, you're still fine as long as you always put your flesh there. Um, and, you know, all of the research, I mean, although we can't, although none of this is scientific enough to say anything about where the flesh should fall, um, it all, every everything I've read going through this and our thing all showed that it packs very tightly. Yeah. Um, it's completely independent of ethnicity. Um, you know what it what it turns out is that very little of the look of flesh has to do with the top couple layers of skin that change color it's you know a lot of it is the guts underneath and that's the same color and that's somewhere on this line um and so using different lighting techniques using different things pushes it around a little bit on the color wheel but they still pack i mean our data and herkman's data show about the same variability it's just in a different place because it's a different person choosing the baseline and so so it does make sense to, across a production, put everyone on the same line, um, regardless of the person. That seems to make sense. It's just, you know, and I'm not, you know, I don't know what we're going to do as far as where we put that line. Yeah. I think we're doing it the right way. Please tell us if you disagree. Um, and hopefully, yeah, it makes a little more sense now. It does to me. That's good. So, should we move on to chatter? Yeah. All right. Um, I'll do my two, and uh, you can take a, a sip of coffee, and then we'll do yours. Um, right. Quickly, I'll just throw out, because we didn't get to it in the main news, and we'll probably talk about this more next week, but it's a really cool article um, based on a SIGGRAPH paper on automatically generating models for uh, taking a 3d model and creating a printable rapid prototypable articulated um, object out of that 3d model so it's software and sort of math to look at 
a 3D model of a person or a hand or something, figure out how the joint should be placed, how the joint should operate, interoperate with each other so they don't conflict, and then actually model the joint so that you can then feed it into something like a MakerBot or some sort of rapid prototyping device and actually create a model with fully functioning joints um, that can be positioned and actually used. And they show off some pretty cool demos within this video, and the paper goes in much more depth on how they're actually doing that uh, because there's a, a lot of interesting problems that have to get solved there. Yes. Yeah, so, do they are these skeletal models? I mean, do they have a skeleton? No. Reset? No. Um, what they're looking at is you. You can look through the video. They sort of walk through step by step, but they're looking at sort of how the skin per se is being deformed and pulled and shaped by bends and things. And um, it's it's kind of hard to explain. But you, when you take a look at the video, they sort of walk through how it's happening. Obviously, they can then hint which things they want articulated so that you don't articulate you know you don't make right. everything into a snake where everything bends because some parts okay. of a model might want to be rigid but uh it's interesting pretty, it's a pretty interesting process um and it, it sort of gets to this idea of if, especially in a world in which you can laser scan an object and then duplicate it with your MakerBot or whatever um you know this is one more piece in the tool chain that potentially means that you're actually duplicating the functionality of an object and not just the physical volume of an object. Yeah. Um, Very interesting. The other thing I'll just toss out there, um, I broke down. I'm rejoining the DSLR club. And oh, so, you are? Uh, I ordered a T3i last night. You did? Yeah. Oh, man. So. Um, what lens did you go with? The newer Canon eight, uh, 15 to 85. Nice. That's a great lens. Yeah. Um, so if anyone has, I don't know, gear recommendations or uh, other things, I, I, I briefly, I, uh, the T4i has been announced, will be shipping shortly. If it's not already shipping, it may actually already be, they may have already sent a batch yep, out. Yeah, um, reason I didn't go for the T4i is that it's primarily a video camera. The feature set that changes is video, and I, for the type of purposes I'm buying a camera for. I don't really care about video. Um, the only thing I was sort of halfway interested in is that the T4i can do in-camera HDR shooting, which is cool, but not worth the almost you know $400 cost difference. So they're still selling both of them? They are still selling both of them. That's been their habit with the last few series of Rebels is to keep the previous model. Um, and so they've decommissioned the T2i now, but they're going to continue selling the T3 and the T4. And they share the same sensor, um, you know different processing but same sensor and a lot of the same you know design um so <laughs> and so I'll, I'll be really curious to check it out and to get out shooting again um i enjoyed borrowing years in italy recently and it sort of made me miss having a, a real camera to shoot on and also as uh, marco arment wrote in a blog post recently uh, the Retina display on the the Retina MacBook Pro is a reminder that while the iPhone 4S camera is very good, it is not a replacement for a good digital SLR, and I certainly see that in my photos. Huh. Interesting. I wonder. I never use mine. I'll yeah. be curious to hear. I mean, I'm I'm excited to try and I, I I'm hoping that I can find the discipline to use it as a creative tool actively so going out in the world with the intention of shooting photographs because i feel like i've been missing some of that as a creative pursuit and since i sort of go out and do a lot of walks and things anyways i'm hoping that it can just become another component of that because i i think exercising that part of my brain would be good um sure so we'll see i mean that's certainly why i got mine i just it never panned out i don't know why yeah Mostly I'll just take photos of cars and bore you with them. Yeah. I bought a CPL, so. A what? A circular polarizer. Oh, uh, so you can get the, get the highlights right? Yeah, exactly. Mm, that's important. It is important. Ah, uh, yeah. So my chatter this week was a post that went up on PVC about the Canon C300 and infrared sensitivity. Um, it's easy to forget these sort of things. Um, you know, there's a lot of question. As cameras get better, a lot of people question 
the need to color correct more and more. Um, you know, just like the footage looks really good coming out of it. You know, it's not like the old days where we had to hand tweak everything to make it look good. You know, the dailies look fine. Why don't we just put it up on YouTube? Um, and this is sort of a reminder of how the what what cameras are capturing isn't what the human eye captures um, and sort of what some of the, the repercussions of that are, especially for, I mean, one of the hardest, one of the easiest tells for whether something's been well color corrected or not is the, um, your shadow coloration, whether or not you nailed a good solid black. Um, and it's interesting that cameras nowadays don't see what we see in blacks um there's a lot of red being captured and so um and this, this is the, i mean the article goes into a bit more depth but i think it's you know i think worth saying that when we talk red what they're dealing with is figuring out some of this boundary between red and infrared and how they build those filters and that those filters have downsides as well in terms of optics and um you know it's a whole system where when we've talked in the past that there are all these choices that camera manufacturers make designing a device that are not necessarily right or wrong but they're choices that are made and they impact what you acquire right and uh it's just good to know what your camera is doing differently than the human eye and how you can compensate for that or leverage that etc or potentially you know depending on the type of photography you're doing choose a different camera um and that's been an issue for example with uh, um in the still photography world people who are really serious about astronomy astronomy for photography where they you know hook a camera up to their fancy telescope some cameras it's really easy to go in and remove that ir filter with an exacto knife and that is hugely important in astronomy and in some cameras it's not um so sure yeah, yeah. Cool. um so next week we'll uh we'll talk SIGGRAPH we'll meet up at the end of the week we'll talk SIGGRAPH if you're gonna be there send us an email let me know I'd love to grab drinks with people uh this is my first time so I'm excited yeah I'm excited for you I'm jealous it's gonna be awesome it should be a good time. It's really like... I don't get to go to video... Con- I mean, we go to video conferences like NAB and whatnot, but I don't get to... We've never been to sessions. Yeah. sessions. Uh, when, and SIGGRAPH's the one where sort of all of the magical it's future the things stuff, happen. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's all that mind-blowing magic that... You know, I don't know if Microsoft's got any papers coming out this year, but they've presented amazing stuff and, yeah. Yeah, there's a, they put up a lot of stuff. They put up the first page of every paper already. So I need to spend this weekend digging through some of these and figure out what I want to go see. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Uh, yeah. Talk to you next week. Sounds good.